Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Bible Church. Looks a little different this Sunday. Glad to have you guys here. If you stand with us, we'll worship the Lord through song. Join with us as we sing.
You're welcome here amongst your people. You inhabit our praise. We're going to sing of the goodness of God. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days, I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. All my life. All my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire in darkest night. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. And I have lived in the goodness of God. For all my life, all my life, you have been faithful. And all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Your goodness, your goodness. So, so good with every breath that I am able. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. All my life, all my life, you have been faithful. Oh my 
Maybe seated, Faith Bible Church. Good morning, Faith Bible. How are we this morning? Oh, come on. It's the first day of our new worship center. Let's go. Yes. Finally. Oh, for sakes, like they're not excited about this, Jason. What's this about? Uh-oh. There are all my jokes on the ground. Um, my name is Seth Brown. I'm the pastor of Adult Connections. And uh, let me be the first to officially welcome you to our new uh, worship center. We are thankful that you're here this morning. It's a beautiful space. Uh, with beautiful people of God, uh, but as one of our elders, Larry Aubrey, said, if you all would have given a little bit more to uh, greater things, we might have had some carpet in here, so um, sort of miss. I'll let God work on your own heart uh, for that, so uh, in all seriousness, it's awesome to be with you this morning. Uh, I get the pleasure of sort of welcoming you in here. I, I want to point out a few more things about the, welcome, about the worship center uh, before we continue singing. Uh, first, the, the uh, carpet is coming in soon. Uh, we're going to have some more acoustical uh, apparatuses. They're going to make us sound better when we sing. That's all coming. Uh, second, we have a new balcony up there. I see all you guys up there. It's packed out up there. How are you guys doing up there? Can I give you a little? Yeah, very nice. Uh, not only can you see much better up there, but there's also an exit for you. Uh, so after the service, I would encourage you uh, to go out that back exit. It'll lead to the uh, kids' area and to the stairs to the elevator. Uh, you can do that. Uh, second, I would ask from uh, the people sitting down below just a little bit of patience over the next few weeks as we get the four-year ready, get these uh, back entrances uh, ready to go. For right now, the only entrance uh, to come in and out of is, is obviously to my right and your left. Uh, so just let's, let's just be uh, courteous to each other. Um, let's be you know, patient with each other. And again, more exits are coming, I promise. Uh, there's also an emergency exit over here to my left and your right if something very bad happens this morning. Uh, you can go out that door, that will lead you to more construction, but at least you won't be in here. So uh, just, just be aware of that. Uh, we also ask that uh, between services, that you don't sort of loiter in the lobby. Uh, we're telling this to the 9.30 hour as well, but just sort of get in and get out as fast as you can. And also, if you have a coffee this morning, it better have a lid on it. Yes, thank you. I see your lid. Yes. Uh, we have a few police officers uh, that go to church here that will be looking for your lids and will be issuing citations. Um, if they're not, if they're not on those cups when you come in here, so please, please be aware of that. Uh, if you're new to Faith Bible Church, you're experiencing this uh, worship center for the first time, just like we are, and we're glad you're here. We hope that you feel encouraged and welcome this morning. Uh, we would encourage you to visit the welcome center uh, out in the lobby as you exit. It's just to your left as you exit these doors. There'll be some folks there to greet you and get to know you and share more about Faith Bible with you. And uh, if you're again, if you're visiting this morning, we are glad you're here. Uh, before we continue on uh, worshiping through song, I want to read from Psalm 84 and dedicate our time to the Lord this morning. So there in Psalm 84, the psalmist says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. I long and I yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she places her young. Near your altars, Lord of armies, my King and my God. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. 
For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, Lord of armies. Amen? Amen. Thank you again so much for being here. If you'll stand right now and greet one another, we will continue singing to the Lord together. Thank you so much. Faith Bible, join with us as we sing. In Christ alone, where my hope is found. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, is here in the love of Christ I stand, in Christ alone. Took on flesh, the fullness of God in helpless pain. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. On him was laid, and here in the death of Christ I There in the ground, his body lay. There in the ground, his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day. 
no guilt in life, no fear in death. There's no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to its final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power in come to you in Christ alone, through Christ alone. We thank you for music. We thank you that you use it to awaken our hearts. We ask that you would dig down deep in our hearts these truths, the truth of Christ, of who he is, of what he's done to set us free, to be with him forever. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what do y'all think? <laughs> all right, all right. Is this great or what? I mean, this is something. I can't believe this day has finally arrived. Uh, Y'all look great from here. This is the best view I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, Y'all are in new seats. You know, in the old sanctuary, everybody had a place they sat. Y'all know that, I'm sure. You sit in the same place. You're all mixed up now, so I don't know where anybody is. I could kind of know if somebody was here or not. So in the coming weeks, sit in the same place. Get that same spot, and so we'll kind of know where you are, and we can figure out if you're here with us. But it's, it's finally moving day, and uh, we've already moved into our children, our youth space. Many of you have been using that for a lot of weeks, and now we get to move into this new worship space. And, uh, of course, as you can see, there's still uh, some finishing touches that are coming, uh, but the finish line's in sight. But we didn't want to wait any longer uh, to get into this place. We wanted to move in as quickly as we could. Our big official dedication service is going to be, Lord willing, on November the 24th. So that's when everything's going to be finished, and we want to have a, a very special service of dedication on that Sunday. Uh, but this morning, this is kind of a preliminary celebration, if you will, as we move into this sanctuary together. 
And we want to invite the Lord's presence here this morning to fill us and to fill this place. And we want to come really this morning above everything else and just express um, our dependence uh, upon the Lord for everything that will happen in this place. There's a story I read years ago about H.B. Uh, Charles. It's about a, a single mother. And as she came to church, and every Sunday when she would come to church, she would pray the same simple prayer, Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And she prayed that prayer week after week, and some of the kids at the church would kind of laugh at her when they would hear this because it was just the same prayer every week, Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And somebody asked her one time, Why do you pray that same little prayer all the time? She said, Well, I just combine the only two prayers that I know. She said, we live in a bad neighborhood, and some, night, uh, some nights bullets are flying around, and I, I grab my little girl, and I cry, oh, Lord. When I see her and wake up in the morning, I say, thank you, Jesus. So when I have to take my little girl to the bus stop in the morning, and I don't know what's going to happen to her during the day, I cry, oh, Lord. And when the bus arrives, and she's safely there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I say, thank you, Jesus. So she said, those are the only two prayers I know. And so when I go to church, I just put them together and say, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And uh, the building process here has gone very smoothly, uh, but we, we've had a great, outstanding uh, group of professionals doing this. But we've still had our, our, our oh, Lord moments uh, through this building process. But we've also had a bunch of thank you, Jesus moments as well. And we want to have one of those right now as we look to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your presence. Father, we're filled with gratitude and with thanksgiving. There are no more fitting words today to express our hearts to you than that simple little prayer, oh Lord, thank you Jesus. Thank you for raising up this church, for guiding us, for your hand of blessing and protection for almost 20 years upon this assembly of believers, for sustaining us by your grace throughout this entire building process. Father, we seek the thickness of your abiding presence with us here in this place. And Father, we recognize that nothing of lasting value will ever happen in this place without you. We need you. We love you. We worship you. We thank you. We praise you and thank you for your good hand of blessing that's been upon us. Father, may we in the days to come experience an abundant outpouring of your sovereign sufficiency in this place. Keep us faithful until Jesus comes. Now, Father, as we open your word together for the first time in this new place, give us ears to hear and incline our hearts to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8, this is the great Old Testament chapter about Solomon's dedication of the temple. Very fitting passage for us here this morning. 1 Kings chapter 8, I want to read verses 1 to 13. Now, this is a really long chapter, 66 verses. We're just going to look at the first few verses and the final verses of this, but we're going to try to develop the main thought of this chapter this morning uh, for us. Let me read these first 13 verses. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month Athanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. By the way, you'll notice the ark is mentioned seven times in these first few verses. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting 
and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him uh, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the end of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the sanctuary. And they could not be seen outside, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, where they made a covenant, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came about when the priests came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister before the cloud, because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built thee a lofty house, a place for thy dwelling forever. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. As we think about this chapter, again, it's a long one. We're not going to look at every detail of it. But I, I want to divide our, our thoughts this morning around two very simple thoughts. I want to start by just kind of painting the scene, and then I want to look at the sufficiency. I've got in your outline the scene and the significance, but we want to look at the scene and the significance, but really the significance is the sufficiency of God that we see in this chapter. Now, the scene is, is painted for us or laid out for us here in the first 13 verses, and we see the incredible uh, structure that was built there, the temple that's filled in with the glory of God. Now, there are a lot of incredible buildings that have been built by man, and probably many of you have traveled around the world and seen a lot of them. Uh, there's the Acropolis in Athens, if you've ever seen the, the great Parthenon there. Uh, there's St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Uh, there's the Sydney Opera House in Sydney, Australia. There's the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Uh, the Empire State Building in New York City and a lot of very impressive new buildings that have been built around the world in recent years. A lot of astounding buildings and some very uh, incredible dedication services as well. Uh, back in 1931, uh, President Herbert Hoover officially dedicated the Empire State Building. And he was in the White House in Washington, and he pushed a button, and it turned on the lights of the Empire State Building at the Great Dedication. It was found out later by many people, though the gesture was just symbolic. While he was turning on the lights in the White House, pushing the button, somebody else in New York had to flip a switch there to turn on the lights. So it looked all impressive, but really it wasn't as great as everybody thought. There have been a lot of great buildings built by human beings, but the greatest, grandest building I think ever constructed is Solomon's Temple. And the greatest dedication service that was ever offered was the dedication service offered in this chapter. It's Solomon's Temple. It's the first Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And, of course, they didn't need a gimmick to turn the lights on. God himself showed up, and he moved in to the temple. The thickness of the glory of God came and filled that place. 
So this was the greatest building ever built, the greatest dedication service ever, and the longest prayer of dedication, the longest prayer in the Bible in this chapter. Uh, Phil Riken says it like this, it's the most awesome, spine-tingling, goosebumps-inducing worship service any group of human beings had ever offered to the living God. It's the greatest moment up to this time in the history of the nation of Israel. This was the, the watershed moment for the Jewish people as God moved in to this permanent dwelling place in the temple. Now, we're not going to have time to look at a lot of the details in this chapter, but I want to focus on a few highlights and to set the scene here for us. The, the temple took seven years to build. Now, try to wrap your mind around these things as I say this, because these are numbers that are very strange to us today, I think. In the temple itself, by the way, the temple structure was only 2,700 square feet. It's uh, 30 feet wide, 90 feet long, and it was 45 feet tall. So not, not a large building. The, at the back of it, the Holy of Holies was a 30-foot cube back there at the back of this long 90-foot, 30-foot wide uh, structure. And of course, there was a lot of elaborate things around it. But to build the temple, they used 4,000 tons of gold. 4,000 tons of gold. 38,000 tons of silver. It said in Solomon's day, silver was so plentiful, it was like rocks. I mean, you just throw silver away. It wasn't even worth anything. That's how much wealth there was. Just in the Holy of Holies, again, it's a room that was a 30-foot cube. The Bible says there were 23 tons of gold in, in the construction of that room. 46,000 pounds of gold. I mean, the walls must have just been thick with gold. It's estimated today, in today's numbers, if you built the temple today of Solomon, it would cost $200 billion dollars. The, the, the most expensive building I know of, I could find on the internet built today, $15 billion. We hear buildings that are one or two or three billion. It's astounding. $200 billion. Someone has figured up that per square foot it was $60 million. $60 million a square foot. Built to the glory of God. And after it was built, they waited 11 months to dedicate it. Now, we kind of jumped the gun here to get in here on Sunday, but they waited a long time because it was finished in the eighth month, and they dedicated it the seventh month. So they waited 11 months, all the preparations that needed to take place. But, but moving day finally arrived. And you'll notice down in verse 3, it says, All the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Now, remember the Ark of the Covenant had been built in the wilderness. They'd carried it in the wilderness. They brought it into the land. Um, David uh, had taken it to the house of a man named uh, Obed-Edom. And then David had actually moved the Ark to the city of Jerusalem before the temple was built. Some kind of temporary structure there where the Ark... So the Ark had already been brought to Jerusalem. So they're bringing it from the city of David now up to the Temple Mount. And it says, they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And then let's look at verse 5. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted. Now God can count pretty well. In fact, later in this chapter, we're going to see at the end of all of this, in a seven-day period, they offer 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen or fatlings that are offered. So God could count to 144,000 there. 
But here at the beginning, it's so many that they're not able to count them. I mean, this is a staggering, over-the-top sacrifice. Again, the ark was already in Jerusalem, down in the city of David, but they're moving it now to the Temple Mount. Uh, there's another passage, we won't turn there, but 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. When David moved the ark from the house of Obed-Edom, where it had been staying, and brought it to the city of Jerusalem, where it stayed until the temple was built, it says there in 2 Samuel 6, 13, when they brought the ark, and this was miles of distance, when it was brought from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, that every six steps they took, they stopped and they slaughtered an oxen and they slaughtered a, a, a calf. Every six steps for miles, they'd take six steps with the ark, stop, slaughter two animals. Six more steps, stop, slaughter two more animals. And that was when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. There must have just been a, a line, a path of blood to Jerusalem as David brought the ark there. But David did this because of his love for Yahweh and his desire to honor him and offer sacrifice after sacrifice of praise to him. Countless sacrifices were offered that day, so many that they lost track of all of them. And there's a lesson for us here. You and I should honor God's presence in our lives by continually offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God. A man named Robert Coleman tells a good story about a little boy and his sister needed a blood transfusion. And his blood was uniquely uh, suited for her and it was a, she had a very serious illness. And so the doctor asked this little brother, he said, would you give your blood to Mary? And he hesitated at first, but with his lower lip kind of trembling, he said, sure. He says, I'll do that for my sister. Well, soon the children were brought into the hospital, and Mary was pale and thin, and little Johnny's robust and healthy. And neither one of them spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. But his smile began to fade as the, the nurse put the needle into his arm and began to, to draw his blood. And as he sat there, his voice began to shake, and he began to have some tears. And he said, Doctor, when do I die? What he had thought is when the doctor asked for his blood that he wanted all of it, and he was willing to give all of it uh, for his sister. And here's what this writer says. Someday God may demand our lifeblood in his service. If he does, he will certainly deserve it. After all, his son has given his lifeblood for us. Yet thankfully, most of the sacrifices God asks us to give are much smaller. Our love, worship, time, money, comfort, dreams, desires. We should give Jesus all this and much more until eventually we lose track of all the sacrifices we've made for the Savior who's given everything for us. Now, I love this. We should sing him countless hymns of praise, offer him countless prayers of thanksgiving, render him countless gifts of money for kingdom work, and serve him with countless deeds of love and mercy. You and I should offer sacrifices and praise to God to such an extent that we lose track of the sacrifices that we've made to him, the one who's worthy. Now, it goes on here in verse 7 and tells us they bring the ark and they put it there in the Holy, Holy of Holies. By the way, in the Holy of Holies, what was in there was two cherubim. We don't exactly know what they looked like, but they had, there was two of them. Each, they had two wings, each seven and a half feet long. So each, the wingspan of each cherubim was 15 feet. So the room was 30 feet wide, so literally their wingspan went from one wall to the other. And of course, the cherubim were placed at the, the, the doorway or the entrance of the Garden of Eden when man was put away from the garden. 
So it pictures man coming back to, to fellowship with a holy God. So the ark is placed there beneath those cherubim in the holy place. But notice it says that there were poles sticking out from the holy of holies into the holy place. Now only the, the high priest could go into the holy of holies once a year, but the priests went every day into the holy place to minister, but they could see those poles sticking out, and as long as they were there, they knew the ark was in there safe, right? And I, I love to think of this as an application for us because we're God's temple today. And back in the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people, but today God has a people for his temple. He indwells us individually. Individually, we're a temple of God. But the local church, this local church, Faith Bible Church, is also pictured as a temple of God. And when we think about us being individually God's temple, it'd be a good question to ask, are there any poles sticking out of my life where other people can see that God lives inside of me? Is it obvious that God indwells the temple of my life? Can people see the poles of God's presence manifest on the outside in my life? In other words, are there visible signs on the outside of my life that God lives on the inside? It's a good question uh, for all of us to ask ourselves. Now, all that's in the Ark of the Covenant is the two tablets of stone. Now, rem remember before in the Ark was a pot of manna and the rod of Aaron that had budded. But evidently, by this time, those have been taken out, maybe because those were a reminder of the wilderness journey. But the law of God um, is still there. And then in verse 10, it came about when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. The priests have to get out of there. And Solomon says, I built this place that God will dwell in the thick cloud. I built thee a lofty place, a place for thy dwelling forever. This is called the Shekinah glory of God. Shekinah means presence or to dwell. It's the radiant outshining of the character of God, the localized presence of God. Uh, this is certainly holy smoke here, if you will, as God uh, comes and fills this temple. Now, this is followed by the longest prayer in the Bible. And then we're going to look a few minutes at Solomon's final, bless, Solomon's final blessing upon the people at the end of the chapter. But as I read this chapter over and over again, there's a lot of details in it. But what is the main thrust of this chapter? What does God want us to see? And what did God, through this dedication ceremony, want to communicate to the people of Israel? What did he want them to learn? As I read through this chapter, I think the dominant theme of this glorious chapter is insufficiency. It's that the temple and the people and the priests and the altars are insufficient. But God is the one to whom we look for, uh, for sufficiency. Now, this is a profound irony in this chapter. This is the greatest building ever built by man. It's the greatest dedication ever seen Yet what God wants to highlight in this chapter, as great as it is, it's insufficient. And I want you to find your sufficiency in me and me alone. I'll show you this. I mean, in verse 5, they offer so many sacrifices you can't count them. Were those sacrifices sufficient? No. They could have just kept offering them. They would have never, ever been sufficient to give enough glory to God. In verse 10 and 11, the priests are insufficient. When God's glory shows up, they have to leave. And down in verse 27, I mean, this is a, an irony of ironies. The builder of the temple, Solomon, recognizes the day they dedicate it that God doesn't ultimately live there. 
Look at verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. The most beautiful, expensive building ever built. And right on the day of the dedication, Solomon confesses, this building can't hold God. It's insufficient. God is immense. God is incomparable. Someone put it like this, God's center is everywhere and his circumference is nowhere. I mean, the, the majesty of God swamps our minds. We talk about the inscrutability of God, that God's inscrutable means we can't really fully understand him. I like what Dr. Walvoord used to say at Dallas Seminary. He said, don't try to unscrew the inscrutable. Sometimes we try to do that. We can't. That's the immensity of God. So he's saying, look, even this building I built, it's not sufficient for you. As you go and read the prayer of Solomon in this chapter, he's going to make it very clear the people are insufficient. He's going to pray about when drought comes and famine comes. Those are disciplines God would bring on them for their disobedience. He even prays at the end and talks about whenever they go into captivity, that God will hear them and bring them back. In other words, the people are going to fail. They're insufficient. And when you get to the very end of the chapter, we'll look at this in a few minutes in verse 64, as they come to bring these 120,000 uh, sheep and the, the, the 22,000 oxen, the altars are insufficient for this sacrifice. Solomon has to come over and, and consecrate uh, the whole courtyard to offer all of these sacrifices. So there's no time in Israel's history when they could have felt more self-sufficient than the day that God moved into the temple. God's presence is there with them. They've got this beautiful building, all these wonderful accomplishments, the greatest building ever built. And it was God's will for them to build it, and God gave them the blueprint for it. But the main thing I think God wanted them to know on moving day, and he wants us to know, is that our, their sufficiency was not in the temple, and it was not in themselves, but that God alone was their sufficiency. And again, it's the same for us when we move into this beautiful building that God has provided for us. We could be tempted to find our sufficiency in this structure or in our accomplishments or in our giving or in our sacrifices or in our abilities, but God wants us to find our sufficiency in Him alone. And that's the focus, really, when you get to the end of this chapter, Solomon's final blessing. He wants us to know that God is our sufficiency and we need Him. We need His sovereign sufficiency in our lives. There's a story about a young college student who was in tears. And she said to her dad, she said, Dad, you gave me some terrible advice. He said, well, what was the terrible advice I gave you? And she said, well, you told me to put my money in that big bank. And now that bank's in trouble. He said, what are you talking about? He says, that's one of the largest banks in the world. He said, surely there's got to be some mistake. She said, well, I don't think so. She said, they just returned one of my checks with a note on it saying insufficient funds. <laughs> Look, we may have insufficient funds, right, in our account, but the good news is God is sovereignly sufficient. The check never gets returned from God, insufficient funds. When we come before God with our needs, God is always sovereignly sufficient. And that's what we see in these verses. God is infinitely, sovereignly sufficient for every area of life. So I just want to look really briefly at four of the great sufficiencies of God for you and me in our daily lives. Look at verse 54. 
It came about when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord. He arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees, and his hands spread toward heaven. If you go back earlier in verse 22, Solomon was standing in front of the altar with his palms uplifted before God, crying out and praying to God. But evidently sometime during this prayer, he fell down to his knees in reverence to God. So at the end of this time, he, he stands up now. And he's he's going to bless the people. And again, there's been so much in this chapter about man's insufficiency, but he's going to highlight now the sufficiency of God. And the first thing we see here is God's presence. Look at verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. Well, you and I need the abiding presence of God in our lives. We need God's presence in our families. We need God's presence in our homes. We need God's presence in this place. And my, my prayer as we kind of celebrate our moving in here today is that in the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come here at Faith Bible Church in this place, we will enjoy the thickness of the presence of God in our lives, in our families, and in the ministry that takes place here. David Livingston, the great missionary, said it beautifully. He said about God, he says, God, I'll go anywhere as long as you go with me. And that's really our prayer here today. God, we'll go anywhere. We'll do what you want us to do as long as you go with us. But we've got to have his presence with us. So God is, God is immense. God is incomparable. But God is also intimate to those who know him. And he's near to us. Look down at verse 59. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. Solomon wants God to be near to him and the people, but he wants his prayers to be near to God. And if you go back and look at Solomon's prayer, seven times he highlights the listening nature of God, that God hears him over and over and over again. And to me, this is, is beautiful. God is immense and incomparable. His majesty dwarfs the universe yet his ears receive the humble prayers of his people. Think about that when you pray to him. God's immensity leaves the boundaries of the universe in tatters. The universe can't contain him. But you and I can talk to him, and he hears us. Think about that when you pray to him. I love those words of verse 59. God, may our prayers be near to the Lord our God day and night. We need God's presence. We need his listening ear. We need God's power. Look at verse 58. That God may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. Look, our power is lacking. We need God to come and to incline our hearts and stir our affections for him. And that's something we should pray often for ourselves. It's something I pray often for myself and for this church. Lord, incline our hearts to you. Stir our affections and our love for you so that we'll walk in your commandments and we will obey you. That's a prayer I can assure you that God loves to answer. We come to him and say, God, I have to have you to incline my heart to you, to stir the affections of my life uh, for you. Another thing we need in God's sufficiency is God's passion in verse 60. Notice all of this is being done so that, that's a purpose statement, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. 
God's purpose for the nation of Israel was to be a place where God was known and seen and that that knowledge of God would go out to all the nations. We're God's temple today, individually and corporately, and God wants us to be a place where the knowledge of Him radiates out uh, to the nations. We need God's heart for the nations. We want this place to be a place that's throbbing and pulsating with the gospel and with uh, the glory of God. And one of the most exciting things to me about this entire project has been that we've given 10% of the money that was given to our building fund here of Greater Things to Step Seminary in Haiti. We've given them about $300,000. And they've been able to construct a building there that was destroyed years ago and the earthquake there. And uh, by the way, when we told them we were going to be given 10% of the money to them, their president, Wawa Jean-Baptiste, said, we're going to be praying for you all every day and for your building program. So we got a whole lot of, of, of prayer support, and that's not why we did it, but a lot of prayer support. And uh, they love this church, and we love them, and we've been able to help them. But we need God's sufficiency to give us the passion that we need for him because, let's face it, all of us become complacent and apathetic in our lives about the Great Commission and taking the gospel to the nations. So we need God to come and to stir our lives so people can know that the Lord is God and there's no one else. Now, when is all this sufficiency of God available? Notice the end of verse 59, that he may maintain the cause of his servants and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. God's sufficiency is an inexhaustible, never-ending supply. It's there when you need it. Here's what Phil Riken says. He says, we need this every day. Every day we need God to be with us through the trials and triumphs of life. Every day we need him to incline our hearts in his direction. Otherwise, we'll wander away. Every day we need him to hear our prayers and answer them for the sake of his glory in the world. We need the sufficiency of God in every way. Now, the most important way that you and I need the sufficiency of God, the most important way that we're insufficient is we are insufficient to get ourselves to heaven. We need God's pardon. We see this down in verses 62 to 64. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. It says here the, the bronze altar wasn't sufficient, sufficient to handle it. For seven days, they're offering these sacrifices, and that area must have been literally bathed in blood. But they were following God's command in the law that says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness. Uh, the price of sin is death, and the price had to be paid in blood. An innocent substitute had to die. And this is the largest national sacrifice in the Bible. But as, as massive as this sacrifice is, 120,000 sheep, 22,000 oxen, it could not ultimately satisfy the wrath of God against sin. It was insufficient. It was just temporary atonement. In fact, what does it say in the book of Hebrews? The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But what they offered for seven days that could never take away sin, Jesus did in six hours. He paid the price of the sins of the world in a single day. God paid the sacrifice His holiness demanded. I know I've said this a lot of times, but I love the old quote by Lewis Ferry Chafer who founded DTS. He said, Old Testament saints were saved on credit. All the bills came due at Calvary. 
They were saved on credit, just a, a covering year after year, time after time as sacrifices were made. But only in the, the sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ was payment made for sin. And God paid the sacrifice that His holiness demanded. So God's pardon is a sufficient pardon. Here in a moment after we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing that great song, Jesus Paid It All. And that's the truth of this passage here this morning. All of this that was offered that was temporary was paving the way and foreshadowing that ultimate once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 9.26 says, He's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. There's an old song. It's a really, really old song that says this, one of the verses, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. It was insufficient. But Jesus has come and offered that once for all sufficient sacrifice for us. I'd ask you this morning, have you received that sacrifice for yourself? We're here celebrating moving day, but the greatest celebration could you, you could have on moving day is for the Lord to move into your life for the very first time as you take Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Let me just tell you this, you're insufficient. We're sinners. We're separated from God by our sin. We're, we're woefully insufficient. But Jesus Christ is our sufficiency uh, before a uh, holy God. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, why not do that here this morning and leave here with the Lord Jesus Christ coming, mo having moved into your heart and your life to take control? You know, as we celebrate moving day here this morning, I want us to take the lesson of 1 Kings chapter 8 to heart. The main lesson of this chapter is this. We're insufficient. This place is insufficient, beautiful as it is, wonderful as it is. We need God. We need His sufficiency. We need His presence. We need His passion. We need His pardon. We need Him to overcome our complacency and our apathy. We need His nearness with us. We need the nearness of our prayers to Him. So my prayer is for this church, for myself, for our leaders here, that God forbid, God help us to never, ever become self-sufficient, to never believe that because God has blessed us with a beautiful place like this, and maybe we have some resources, maybe we have some abilities that God has given to us, that in any way we are sufficient without Him. He is our sufficiency and Him alone. Well, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper now, let's pray together. Father, we come before you now. We would pray if there's anyone here this morning that's never experienced their own moving day, of you moving into their heart and their life through faith in Jesus Christ, that they might do that now, that they'd call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in this place. Lord, you, you've been with this church now for almost four decades. You've guided us. You've helped us. You've sustained us. You brought us to a place. You, you've guided and provided for us to build this beautiful building. Father, God, help us every day to rest in you and find our dependence and our sufficiency in you and you alone and to recognize that if anything of eternal value happens in this place, it's going to be because of you. It's going to be because of your work. And now, Father, bless us as we have the wonderful opportunity now to come and remember your Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
Thank you so much, Mark. I want to invite those who are serving to come down front, begin doing that. It has been uh, a moving day uh, here on, on moving day. And I just uh, appreciate so much what Mark's been able to share with us from Second Kings or First Kings chapter 8. We have uh, just a couple of items before, as we move through this. Uh, we practice open communion here at Faith Bible Church. And so what that means is you don't have to be a member of Faith Bible to celebrate the Lord's Supper here with us today. Uh, we simply ask that you be a believer in Jesus Christ, one who has trusted in Christ to be their Savior, their sin bearer. Uh, if you've never taken communion with us as these trays pass by, make sure you take both cups. Uh, the bread cup uh, is, uh, is stacked underneath the, uh, the, the juice cup. So take both cups, and I'll tell you when to take the elements here in just a moment. David writes in Psalm chapter 25, verse 11, he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And what David cries out for in this verse is pardon from sin. He wants to be forgiven, and pardon from sin would be of great benefit to David, for he has sinned greatly. That's how he describes his problem with sin, that it is great. For the sake of David, it makes sense that he's crying out for mercy. For the sake of David, wouldn't forgiveness and pardon from sin be very beneficial? Of course it would. You know, isn't that why you've come to Jesus? Because for your sake, forgiveness is very helpful to you. You need it. It makes you right with God. It keeps you out of hell. Can there be anything more beneficial than eternity in heaven? For your sake, you've been forgiven. But that's not actually what this verse is crying for. David is saying, God, my sin is great. It's immense. So for the honor of your name, God, so that you will look good, pardon me from my sins. Forgive me of my sins. The heart of the person seeking pardon from God for their sins recognizes the overriding glory that God is due when their sins are forgiven. I'm proud. I'm self-absorbed. I'm somewhat narcissistic. Not only is my behavior often awful, but my, my, my motives are also. And so maybe you're like me. My sins make me look bad because my sins are bad. And so therefore, the person who looks really, really good when my sin is pardoned is not me. It's the one who's pardoned me. It's the one who not only loves me despite my sin, who not only shows me mercy for my sin, but it's the one who justly bore the weight of my sin, taking the full penalty my sin is due on the cross. That's what the table reminds us of today. Not that we are great. Not that this is done for our sake, but that he is great. And this is for his sake. I was reading through Charles Spurgeon's Treasury of David, which is his commentary on the book of Psalms. And I ran across this quotation. He writes, Since God forgives sins for his namesake, he will be ready to forgive many sins as well as few, great and small. Indeed, the more and greater our sins are, the greater is the forgiveness, and consequently, the greater is God's glory. So now before we take the supper together, just bow your heads, close your eyes for a few moments, meditate on the finished work of Christ in your life.
and we'll take the supper together. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it. Let's give thanks for the bread before we take it. Father, in the sending of your Son, and in the living of his perfect and righteous life, and in his obedience unto death, even death on a cross, his body was broken, it was broken for us. And so, Lord, to lay hold of his righteousness, which we desperately need, we look to Christ by faith. Thank you for this bread. After he gave thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's give thanks for the cup. Father, as we were reminded today, the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient. If it would have been sufficient, Lord, every effort was made, but it was insufficient. Only the blood of Christ washes our sins away. Only his blood has the power to heal us and to cleanse us and to make us in our hearts whiter than snow. We look to the blood, the saving power of his, his work on the cross to save us. It's in his name. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that the gospel has been proclaimed as we've gathered at this table. The gospel's been proclaimed as we've sung praises to you and as we've looked at your word. And so, Lord, sink these truths deep into our hearts. Move us, change us, capture us as we seek to live lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand and sing, please.
stand in him complete Jesus died my soul to say my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid Jesus paid it all to live my own sin had left a crimson stain he washed it so sin sin had left a crimson stain he Praise the one. couple of instructions before uh, I let you be dismissed. Uh, there is a welcome center out in the lobby. If you're a guest with us today, which I feel like we have a few here, stop by there, get to know somebody. They would love to give you some information about Faith Bible Church if you're looking for a church home. Also, if you've come in today and you have a need, a burden that is on your heart, uh, you need somebody to pray with or just to talk to, our elders will be down front. We'd be happy to spend as much time with you as you need. Uh, Seth gave some great instructions to you uh, about exiting. Take your time as you leave. Uh, we only have two doors here on the bottom floor to go out of, so just be patient there. Try to take your cups with you. There's no cup holders in these chairs, so uh, make sure you make your way out with them so that we can get those thrown away. Um, also, if you're in the balcony, your best uh, place of egress is right up there. Uh, most likely that puts you uh, into the children's ministry uh, area. The benediction is from, the, second, or is from uh, the end of the chapter that we just studied this morning. And at the end of that chapter, the statement is this. It says, go to your homes, go joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness the Lord has shown us. Go in his goodness. You're dismissed.